They had the August fiasco, they had the Tim Payne fiasco, now they've had this. Australian cricket, despite moving on from Sandpaper Gate, is still marred in quite a few controversies. Welcome back to episode three of the Cricket Central podcast. Uh, it's been a pretty dramatic week while we've been away. We've had cullings uh, in Australia and across in England and really a, a bit of a brawl breakout between the old guard of Australian cricket and and the new guard coming through. So much to talk about there. Uh, I'm here with Pearson and Ethan today. Pearson, how are you? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm back in Canberra, so... Maybe the audio will be a bit different. We'll find out. Maybe my thoughts are clarified today and you, or the opposite. Very good. And Ethan Krabs, how are you? Yep, I'm, I'm well as well. Not too much cricket on now, but the T20s are starting again, so that's, that's making me happy. Yes, yes. Much to, to look forward to there. Um, to start off this week, we've got uh, a question coming in from one of our listeners and uh, a fellow host of a Sports Central podcast, um, William Geary. He's asked the question of, you know, what we see often with the women's um, series, having multi-format points system tours, uh, where you, so you get some points for a T20 series, more points for the test, and then some for the one days as well, and it adds up to the end. He's thinking this would be a good way to enliven sort of dead series at the moment against, you know, teams like the West Indies or, or Pakistan or, or something like that. Um, what do we think of this idea, uh, Pearson? I, do, I, I get the reasoning, but I don't like it personally. I don't, I don't think it's a necessity. I think it exists in things like the women's ashes because they play one test totally. I don't think in a series like, the men's ashes where you would have five tests it would be at all logical to really include white ball series there especially if you stay with the same scoring format of four points per test two points per odi slash t20 it would mean that if australia dominated the test series and won four nil then regardless of what england did in the white ball even if we won every game we would still lose the series i think Overall, quality will shine through in each respective format. I don't think we need to mesh them all together. I think series are good enough as is. There's always an incentive. There's no incentive to not try and win every test match, every ODI and every T20 you play. You can blood in new players like the New England squad, but ultimately people want to win. So I don't think we need to spice it up with any of these new rules taken from women's cricket. Ethan, do you have a similar view on this one? Yeah, I think increasingly nowadays we don't get these all-format tours. Uh, you saw England went to the 20s and they're going to come back again for tests later on, then you go for tests. So the, the issue for me is that you don't actually get these multi-format tours that much anymore. And so it's not too viable in that respect. And also I fear it's going to be something that people don't really care about, just winning this overall sort of an overall series win. Like there are importances in winning a test series or winning an individual series but I'm not sure how how much teams will actually care about winning overall um it works in the women's game because that's that's the ashes that's how it's decided but I guess if, if we went to the West Indies I think uh you know you'd rather like win a test series and just say we we won I guess overall um so that would probably be my review on that yeah that's a that's a good point don't agree or at least your facial expression suggested some disagreement <laughs> well, I, I like I like the the thought behind it of making you know one day in T Twenty series more meaningful because you know a lot of the time the fans don't really care about them and you know you play different players weaker squads than than you probably might um, but you're probably right you know just linking it all in one isn't going to change the, isn't going to make the fans care about it more probably so. It's not really a great solution, but I like the thinking uh, from, from Will Geary there, and I, I'm sure he'll have a comeback for us. He always does. And probably the, one, the one thing you could say is it sort of can, inc like it can change the way you play the test. If it's a must-win test, for example, in the women's ashes, England pretty much had to win that to um, you know, sort of stay alive, then it, it might like, encourage some more aggressive and yeah, cricket. Like, but but surely you'd get the same thing in a test series of when we were 2-0 down going to Melbourne, we had to win that test. There still must win tests without the multi-format thing. 
Arguably, you could say teams like in England who know they will win 90% of whiteboard games they play could try and play to draw test matches and not risk losing mm. to play to their strengths. I'm not convinced by that line of argument, at least, that it would produce great quality test cricket. Yeah. I think I think with the women's, it's more the fact that they just have one test. So yeah. If you, you know, have but, one four-day test, you need other things to supplement. Yeah. But, you know, we do see a lot of the aggressive... Yeah, we do see a lot of aggressive decision making in the women's ashes. So maybe, maybe the idea of only having one test, you know, amongst other things for some lesser teams might not be a bad idea. Putting everything on that one test, but that's another issue altogether. Okay, it was smaller series. I don't think something like the Ashes you could get away with. Oh no, no. But yeah, I, I maybe in like a Bangladesh West Indies or something, you could trial it in the same way they trial four day tests. It's not a terrible idea. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And thanks uh, to Will Geary for that. And yeah, we're looking forward to more questions from other people. Okay. We'll move on to what um, caught our interest uh, in the past week. Uh, we'll start with you, Ethan. Well, uh, I mentioned it before. The Australia T20 is starting tonight. And I think the big surprise is really the balance of the side that we've gone for. Um, we've announced the 11 already and it'll be Finch and McDermott opening Warner's away. Josh Inglis will have his debut at number three. Um, then, who's at four? Smith at four, Maxwell five, Stone at six, Wade seven, uh, and the normal bowlers. So uh, I guess the heading into this, I think most people would have expected Smith to bat three and possibly Ashton Agar to come into the side at seven. Um, Agar was, you know, in the top 10 rankings for the bowlers and pretty much since the World Cup where he was expected to play, we've sort of just omitted him from the side. Um, it, it worked in the UAE. It'll be interesting to see if it works again in Australia, but um, it is interesting that they've gone for Inglis at three. Um, obviously happy to get him a game, but I think what Australia might struggle with is Mitch Marsh is so reliable. He is aggressive, yes, but he's also the most reliable and highest run scoring bats on the side. English seems to me a little bit hit or miss. Um, so I'm, I'm impressed that they've gone for the same sort of balance. I think they're stating their intent that this is their game plan long term, um, but I'm not sure that um, it'll work as well. We might get away with it against someone like Sri Lanka um, having you know a shaky top order um but yeah it, it is interesting to see one other thing i'll mention is that josh inglis is one of the best players of spin supposedly in australia R ricky ponting says um that no one plays rashid khan better in the big bash than josh inglis so he might be um valuable to tackle on the sri lankan spinners in the middle overs um hasaranga is ranked uh, world number one just looking forward to that series i don't really think we'll change the team much Travis Head is going to be available for the fourth T20 um, and if you're looking sort of to the World Cup he's probably the only one who can Smith's spot in the side in my opinion I think it's probably pretty easy to criticize Steve Smith after that World Cup he didn't really do a, a whole lot and he sometimes looked more of a hindrance than a help so if Travis Head gets a game in that fourth and fifth T20 um, that might be I guess the one big change that Australia make for the World Cup. Um, the test squad's also been announced. No real surprises there. I think um, what's, I guess, shocked a couple of people is that Harris has retained his spot. Um, again, if there was a viable backup, I could, I could understand it. But I think Clark was saying, um, you know, it, we've given him so many chances, he's done nothing. Why don't you just pick someone else? Um, I think Clark also said that Pukowski won't be ready for another year or so. Um, so I, I guess you do wonder if you hand the reins over to someone like a Bryce Street or something. But yeah, I can understand Harris will um, just hang around the squad. I don't expect him to, to play much. Kalaja should be opening all three tests uh, in Pakistan. So that should be a very, very interesting tour. Last thing I'd like to mention is that Jai Richardson uh, wasn't picked in that squad. Um, just as a fan, I'm sort of questioning his fitness at the minute. He played one test and then had to rest the next test because um, he wasn't ready to play again. And now he's been supposedly rested from this tour after, you know, playing one test in the summer. Um, I can understand if he hasn't been picked just on selection because, you know, it's hard to 
with Holland. Um, but, it, you know, it does raise the question, if his fitness is that bad that he plays one test and he can't play again, does he actually have long-term prospects? Yeah, it's an interesting question. It's not a great sign. And, yeah, he's probably not too happy about Bolland seeming to jump in here in, uh, in kind of the, the pecking order also. But just on Marcus Harris quickly, I think Clark is a bit harsh on, on Harris there. Yes, he hasn't, you know, made a made the 50s that you probably would want, but... He has shown signs and that, that 50 in Melbourne was was impressive and I don't think he's been that bad to warrant getting sacked from the whole squad. You know, have him there, see how he's playing and have him as the backup. He's still probably our best backup opener there um, across the subcontinent. But Pearson, uh, you might have a different view on Harris. Well, I think you needed a backup opener and I don't think you want to do a baptism of fire by bringing in someone who's never played a test for Australia before into the subcontinent as the backup. So I think Harris was the logical choice. I don't think he's a long-term selection option for Australia. I still think Pukowski will usurp him as will possibly others like Bryce Street. So I don't think it's a long-term thing, but I think he was pretty much the only option you could go for as the backup in the squad. Or you went down the England route and you picked no backup opener and hope that they don't get injured. But we'll get to that later. And I'm not sure I agree with that selection policy. But yeah, I, th- I think it's a bit of a nothing call, but you had to go, Harris, really. There's a lack of alternatives. And just quickly for you on Steve Smith, I know you're really not a fan of Steve Smith playing in the Australian T20 team. Um, would you be happy seeing Head come in for him or, or someone like that? Well, I, I don't, it's not that I don't think Steve Smith is good enough to say. I think he probably is. I just think he's in a similar situation to Joe Root and Ben Stokes in the England side, in that the state of play has probably gone beyond his style. I don't mind having some form of anchor, but I think with the consistency you've gotten from Mitch Marsh, you probably don't need one, particularly if you're playing the extra batsman at seven with Matt Wade. So I, do, I don't think he's necessary, and I would rather you allocate his time towards ODIs and test cricket. And I think it would cause, hopefully, an increase in his test form for you and him to continue what has been quite solid ODI form, batting three for a sustained period. Whether it's head, I'm not sure. I wouldn't pick head either, to be honest. I get he's solid, but he's now a test player, and I like focusing on him in the slightly longer formats, like, what I'd like to do with Steve Smith. So I think it comes down to whether someone can come in and really show they deserve that spot. And I think the only two that can right now are probably McDermott and Inglis. And if they can, if either of them can stand out and score consistently big runs in this series, then maybe we'll see one of them as a bolter into the squad and possibly the 11 from the World Cup. I want to get John O'Wells in the squad, but I don't think that would be happening anytime. Released by Adelaide Strikers, which I think is ridiculous. What? sacked off by his big bash thing. <laughs> he was their most <laughs> consistent player this season. That's no, I know. He's their batsman and they got rid of him. I think it's ridiculous, but he left it. I think the Renegades are going to take him next season. Well, that's the expectation. I'm shocked. Who are they? Yeah, he can't make his big bash team. He ain't going to make the national side. <laughs> yeah, well, Just on the, uh, the, the Steve Smith point, when he's in the side, Australia have no left-handers between three and six. Um, so that's something that the media did focus on and another advantage for head because if there's yeah. someone bowling leg spin, you might want to break it up with some left yeah, hands in the middle. The prevalence of someone like a Hasaranga could cause you issues this series. Last World Cup, Adil Rashid and Shadab Khan cause you problems. Yeah, there's some argument behind that. I'm just, I'm not convinced head is the solution. I still, I still think as a basic ground rule, you pick your seven best batsmen and I I'm not convinced Smith or Head suit being one of your seven best batsmen in the style of play you want to enact for the next couple of years of T20 cricket. Mm. Yeah, that's probably fair enough. Uh, move on to you now, Pearson. Uh, what's caught your attention in, in the past week? Well, the, the only ongoing international men's cricket series at the minute is the ODI series between the West Indies and India in India. It's been fairly one-sided 
India have never really gotten out of first gear, but won both games quite comfortably. The West Indies have been let down by their top four, who are there primarily to take the game deep, not taking the game deep and losing early wickets. But at the same time, India also haven't really performed with the bat. It's been quite a weird series, actually. I, I mean, you'd always expect the series to go the way of India. And at the minute, it looks like that's, well, and that's what has happened. I think it probably will end up being a whitewash. There's been some very interesting selection decisions, particularly around India. I know Rohit Sankar, who is one of the editors of the Wisdom magazine, posted on Twitter after the second ODI that he was drooling over the previous night's decisions. They So in that game, they tried out Rishabh Pant opening the batting to try to have a more aggressive opening batsman, something he's never done in his career. Um, they used a floater, according to Sanka. I must admit, I don't remember who the floater was, but they have one, I'm guessing, Suyakuma Yadav. And they bowled their bowlers in short one to two over spells rather than long spells. This is for, for an Indian side that for quite a long period hasn't really changed their style. It's quite interesting and experimental. After their T20 World Cup exit in the group stages last year, they got slated from all corners having an old-fashioned style of cricket. So possibly this is an indication they hope to push forward and modernise a bit and take a more almost English style of batting with the top order aggressor, a floater like Australia having Maxwell and shorter spells from the bowlers. So it, it, it poses some interesting strategy decisions, but it's probably the best series to do it. They're playing a fairly weak West Indies side and it's while they've not played at full capacity, it's largely worked for them so far. And it sets up an interesting go into the future if they stick with this when they play sides like England in the English summer in a few months time. Mm, that is interesting. Uh, I saw maybe the one consistency for them is uh, Virat Kohli continuing to struggle with eight and eighteen. I think his two scores. Yeah, they they were they. It wasn't it wasn't even a technical thing. It felt mental almost. Some of his well, the two failures he's had this series is not his first innings actually, which I think he had eight or four in the first ODI. Reminded me a lot of Steve Smith's first innings of the Ashes series, where he came out playing an anchor role, but looked to be needlessly aggressive and ended up going out playing a rash shot. To me, that was a signal of some kind of mental ineptitude. As a lot of people were saying on Twitter, a lot of cricket pundits were suggesting that now that he's lost the captaincy, he's there for a good time rather than a long time. And a lot of his knocks of late have felt like that. Of course, in test cricket, he's been criticized for nicking off the balls he should be leaving. And now he's playing an ultra-aggressive style as a number three in the white ball side. It's, it's an interesting way of going about it. I don't think two innings is really enough to draw any conclusion on the downfall of Virat Kohli in white ball cricket. He is it's not just two innings, though. He's been down for a little while. Well, oh, his, his white ball form, well, ODI's been down a little. Test is very down, but T20 is as good as he ever was. His issue has been he's not been hitting match-winning hundreds in the two longer formats. And if he can turn a corner and manage that, then maybe he'll have success. He'll get back to his old ways. But it's been a weird period for him, both mentally and technically. He is, he is not hoping that he doesn't, uh, that he gets back to those old ways. <laughs> anyway, Ethan, any, anything to comment on, on this series? Well, I think the interesting thing for me has been Surya Kumar Yadav. He's hit 98 runs across the two games and been dismissed once. He's probably been India's best batsman, but how does he actually make their full-strength side is, is the question. He said in the media that he's willing to, to bowl. Um, maybe he can make the number six spot over someone like a Hardik Pandya or a Deepak Hooda. Um, Wait, what does he bowl? Do you know? I, I assume he just bowls medium, but I'm not sure. He hasn't bowled this series yet, though. So if he's not going to bat in the number six spot, the only spot that's available is the number five spot over Rishabh Pant. He's struggled a little bit. Of course, Cal Ruffle could take the gloves. So that's going to be the only way that Sura Kumar Yadav can break into the side. So that'll be an interesting decision in the future. Well, could, could they, just looking at what they did last time, could they push Pant up the order? 
Because, of course, Shikadawam is now 35, 36. So as soon as he stops making runs, it could be an option to say, we'll move Punt up the order as this aggressor and we'll bring in Suyukume out of at five or possibly even six. I mean, it is worth noting they've played Deepak Puda both games and he's barely bowled an over. In the same way in previous series, they brought in Venkatesh Iyer at six and he didn't really bowl. I know they like the idea of this all-rounder, but if they're not using him really as a bowler, whoever does play at six, what's the point? Mm. It's a bit like Australia. That's what, that's what I do at least. When he's a risk. Yeah, it's a bit like Australia with Marcus Stoinis sometimes as well. You just you wonder. It's a bit of a mystery why they get bold. Anyway, <laughs> uh, moving on. Moving on to my thing for this week. Uh, the Sheffield Shield. We've had a few good performances by people. Um, Jake Weatherald and uh, Drew scoring centuries for South Australia in their game against Victoria, which they're doing quite well at, surprisingly, for um, the Redbacks. Uh, but the other story there was Head scoring a duck, um, getting out to Scott Bolland, um, and Carey also getting a low score. So, yeah, not so great for them. A bit of a letdown after the, the test series, perhaps, for them. And then on the Victorian side, we have Pekovsky in his first game back, which was good to see. Uh, and Marcus Harris also um, making a 50, so potentially... Um, showing some form there. Uh, then in the other game, New South Wales versus Queensland, um, Kawaja was a lone hand in the first innings for Queensland, um, making a, a quality 63. Um, and yeah, that's about all I have to say in the shield uh, about the shield. Anything that, that's caught you guys' eyes? Um, I'm, I'm go- I would like to put a blanket ban on the name Tanvis saying for this. I'm <laughs> 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 I was going to mention. He's convinced that Tanvir Sanger is the Messiah, and I won't let this stand. He has bowled well. He took two for 17 off 7.1, and he took one for 21 off seven. So not bad figures, but he's not there yet, as much as Ethan likes to mention. And I will say, I reckon the knock of the, the, what you call it, this round at least, which you neglected to mention, was Daniel Hughes. It's an Open and beaten 86, opening a batting and carrying his bat as the whole side went out for 186. If not for him, there's a reasonably good chance they wouldn't have come close to parity and the comeback they've had in the third innings wouldn't have been of much use for them. Because I think he scored pretty much more runs than every other batsman combined in that innings, except for Chris Tremaine, who popped up with a random cameo again. But it's, an, it's been an interesting round. And they've been quite, well, at least that game was quite low scoring. And it's made for some fun viewing. Although I do think New South Wales will get the job done in this fourth innings. Hmm. Yeah, Mark Steckerty picking up five in that innings. Um, quite good. He's always seems impressive to me, Mark Steckerty. But, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think he should usurp Michael Nisa in the pecking order for sixth choice. I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I rate Nisa, but I don't think, in at least Australian conditions, he offers as much as a Steckity would. Steckity has more bounce, more height, and more pace. And he can bat a bit, despite being a 10 in this match. Mm. But that, that would be my one takeaway on Steckity. Mm. Okay, well, without further ado, I think we'll move on um, to the big story. Um Justin Langer on Monday, uh, after much speculation and, and drama, which we discussed um, on last podcast, uh, he ended up resigning um, after not accepting a short-term extension, which I think was believed to be after until after the upcoming T20 World Cup. Uh, and then in his resignation letter, he apologised for being too, if he appeared to be too intense at times, um, but then said, you know, rather pompously that, uh, you know, he was always built upon values of honesty, respect, trust, truth, and performance, and uh, kind of having a bit of a dig at, at the players if they if they uh, weren't able to, to cope with those values. Um, and then we had basically all of his teammates rush to his defence. Uh, Steve War saying that there was plenty of clarity, uh, no, sorry, plenty of buzzwords, but no clarity um, in Cricket Australia's statements on uh, why he was essentially sacked. 
Uh, and then a lot of criticism of Pat Cummins for not offering any support uh, in the weeks leading up to the resignation. Um, and Mitchell Johnson, uh, a previous teammate of Pat Cummins, even saying that the baggy green now stood for selfishness. So, yeah, we've had a big soap opera going on. I guess the first question is, uh, was was he treated badly by Cricket Australia? And, you know, in, in the way that there wasn't really much clarity, it is true to say, and there were kind of reports coming out about players saying things, um, no real explanation of, you know, what he had needed to, what he had done wrong, really. Um, do you buy into that? Or do you agree with what Ian Chappell uh, memorably said, that it was, uh, you know, just the Justin Langer PR machine um, coming out in, in full force and that really Cricket Australia didn't do much wrong? Um, Ethan, I'll start with you. Yeah, again, I, I can understand the decision to actually get rid of Langer but I think the handling of it's been very poor um, I think like the six month contract I think someone described as a slap in a slap in the face it's saying like oh we don't really want you for the long term we get us some short term results and then we'll we'll give you the boot so I don't think that was a, a smart decision at all and I think it's you know it's quite sad to think that Langer who built this sort of team on values of honesty and respect um, had to, you know, you know, experience this like Cummins just stood in front of Kashi and just avoided every question mm-hmm. and clearly said said nothing. So I guess from my perspective, uh, I don't really understand why. So Cummins has clearly um, since since that Kashi interview explained that the rationale behind um, why why Langer had hasn't been you know re-signed. Um, I feel like that could have come a little bit earlier. And again, like this whole handling of things has created, as you mentioned, the divide between past and present players and, and that's also limited the actual future potential to get some new coaches in like if you're someone like a Gillespie and you've seen Langer treated like this what incentive is there to actually coach the national side um, and if we don't you know have Australian coaches I think it's you know it's a very very risky road to go down um, so you know I, I can I can understand why they want a, a more collaborative approach as Cummins described it and a bit more of a relaxed atmosphere around the team. Um, I, I, I can, you know, get that the results haven't been great over the last four years. I think Brendan McCullum said that um, any any coach could have won the Ashes and he said England are rubbish, which it's, it's fair enough. Um, but yeah, at the same time, it's there would have been, you know, controversy if, even if they handled it well, because Langer's you know, done fine in many people's eyes, but they've, they've handled it poorly. Um, and that's how we find ourselves in the mess we're in now. Um, it's also poorly timed in the sense that now Langer is gone. He's now one of the favourites to coach England. Um, and if we head up to the Ashes over there, he'll know all the secrets. And so that's not going to help our chances there either. Yeah, that's right. No, but I think you do make a good point there that it was always going to be a bit of a drama, no matter how, how they handled it, because it, it is a bit of a strange situation someone who's won the Ashes, you know, being booted out for, you know, the reasons of his coaching style and players not liking him. But we'll get to that in a second. And we spoke a bit last week. Possibly fair enough. Pearson, um, do you think it, it was handled badly? Yeah, I, th- I, I think the issue was the way it was handled. I think it probably was the right decision to change coaches. I think, yes, Langer was successful, but... It's felt weak to me, I think, the way that they went about it. And that was my primary concern, was either get rid of him or don't get rid of him. The six-month contract was a sign of, we don't really want to sack you, but we're also caving into player power. And I don't like the precedent that's setting. So I think, yes, he probably will be replaced by another coach that might perform better. They definitely want someone who, supposedly, to quote a Australian journalist doesn't sweat the small stuff, which probably means they'll look at someone like a Trevor Bayliss. But it is also worth noting, Trevor Bayliss was the England coach that meant we lost the Ashes at home for the first time in since, what, 2001 in 2019. So I don't think he's necessarily going to be a big improvement. But I think it is, particularly in Australia, arguably the Australian cricket captain is the second most important person to the prime minister in this country. So he does have considerable power and weight in what he says. 
So I think ultimately they've made the right call. Just the weak handling of it with the six-month contract has really flared up tensions and divided the two halves of Australian cricket. I thought Cummins handled it well, actually, with his press conference. It was punchy, clear. He said exactly what he thought without being uncivil. But I think this will brush over pretty quickly. They just need their new coach to come in and start winning. If their new coach comes in and loses, then they're going to start having a lot of complaints. But ultimately, it's a results-based business, and all discussions will end if you beat Pakistan in Pakistan in a month's time. Mm. Yeah, Cummins' press conference after it was announced was pretty good. I think before that, he probably could have been a bit more tactful. Um, you know, Wait, but I, I, it was a difficult situation. And I think, as what, you said... What are your thoughts on it, Ted? Well, yeah, I think... I agree with, with, with both of you, really, that it was always going to be difficult and, you know, probably, you know, it wasn't horribly badly handled, but it's just a, it's just a disappointing look, really. Um, but I, I think the bigger question is over, you know, how much play, power that the players have. Um, Ian Chappell said that, uh, you know, really the Australian captain is the most important uh, role and he has a lot of uh, he should have a lot of say in who the coach is and, and that sort of thing but then there's other people like Shane Warne in a bit of a bizarre podcast um, that he was on you know throwing up all sorts of ideas about how there's powerful cliques within the team um, even <laughs> making sort of bizarre reference to Cape Town um, and saying that you know the bowlers um, you know got away with got away with it there and the batsmen Smith, um, Warner and Bancroft were made the, the scapegoats. I don't know, you know, how that really links to it, but do you think it, it is true that there was, there was some players that have too much power within the team? Um, either of you on that one? Yeah, it's, it's a tough one to say. I think one thing that I guess stood out in my mind was there, there were a couple of players who spoke to the media from memory. I think Alex Carey was one of them who said, you know, he was fully supportive of, Justin Langer, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So just came across to me like that wasn't coherence between the actual playing group that they actually wanted this change of coaching style, um, which which I thought was interesting, and that possibly does indicate that um, some people have have got a bit more power than others, and you know even if there was a general consensus that um, you know not everyone was on board with it, which I, I I thought was interesting. I can understand. Um, you know, if you've got like a sort of leadership body or an experienced body that they make the core decisions. But I, I would have thought that everyone was sort of consulted and no one should have been shocked, especially from the playing group, that this decision was going to be made. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's that's the thing that, you know, if it was that this was a good time to move on to a more collaborative approach after we've sort of recovered from Cape Town, well, then that's fair enough. But then Cricket Australia probably should have, said that right from the outset, not try and give him a kind of, yeah, a slap in the face six months contract like this and, you know, try and paper over what's going on. It should have all been clear. So, but I think the fact that there wasn't clarity and that does show that there must have been some sort of division within the, within the team or, or in regards to Cricket Australia also. And that's probably not, not great for the team. Pearson? Yeah, it's also, there's the, the other notable point to make Grant, granted, I'd say this decision has been in the works for quite a while because we had that whole debacle last August over player power and Langer being too intense and players refusing to play for him. I think that started the whole fiasco. And then, of course, I honestly think the final nail in the coffin was actually Tim Payne's resignation. Is one of the things that Langer was very good at was he had a very, very close relationship with Tim Payne. I don't think he's ever been able to replicate that style of relationship with Pat Cummins. And I think that always meant he was going to struggle. I think the issue they have is the timing, is this has been in the works for the better part of a year. If they'd done this before they started winning, no one would have batted an eyelid. So possibly we need some reinforcement to the fact that it has been in the works and this was discussed back as long as the whole issue in august so i don't i don't it's by no means a reactionary decision of course it's not if it were reactionary he'd mm. still be in his job 
but I think it's probably going to end up being the right call. It's just it will cause controversy until everything settles down. I just don't I don't think it's as big of an issue as people are making out. I think it's the player PR machine versus the former player PR machine to quote Ian Chapel. And I think he's right. Both have a big backing, both have a lot of distrust, and it's just gone from there. It's a non-issue, really. People sack coaches all the time. They'll get over this within a few months. If you have a successful series in Pakistan, we won't hear about Justin Langer ever again. Unless he takes the England job, that'd be fun, but I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, I, I wouldn't call it a non-issue. You know, It was always going to be ugly because of the different views. But It was, it was I, always going to be ugly, but I don't think it's that serious. They, they sacked a coach no. whose results average until six months ago. It's hardly yeah. the most controversial decision. Yeah, but I think both with the handling of Tim Payne and now with this, there is a lack of control that Cricket yeah, Australia that seems to have. It's, yeah, it's, it's a handling issue, I think. Yeah. He's, he probably didn't merit the job in the long term. It was just a terrible way of publicising the whole thing. They had the August fiasco, they had the Tim Payne fiasco, now they've had this. Australian Cricket, despite moving on from... Sandpaper Gate is still marred in quite a few controversies every six months. It is a weird one, but they'll, I think most people get over it reasonably quickly. Well, yes, yeah, so Australia's definitely had controversial sackings, but then we have the English sackings so recently, which are definitely not controversial because uh, they're just not good enough. Uh, Pearson, what, what exactly has been going on there? Who's been sacked? Uh, who's going to be brought in? What's the, what's the grand plan for the English this time? It's been a weird one. We seem to have decided that once a day we'll make a big announcement about English cricket. We had, in back-to-back days, we had Ashley Giles get sacked, Chris Silverwood get sacked, Graham Thorpe get sacked, and, of course, this god-awful squad. Well, not god-awful, but this subpar squad announcement that I suspect we'll get on to. I don't think any of the three coaches that did get five really can have many qualms. I think Giles strategically made a big error in giving so much power to Silverwood. He opposed Strauss's view of splitting the coaching staff, which backfired, and he gave Silverwood the role of and chief selector, which backfired. So I think he had to go, and I'm pleased he has. I think that decision of who who is appointed as a successor will be important. It probably should be Strauss, but he won't take the job because he needs to stay with his children at home following the tragic passing of his wife a couple of years back. I would like it to go to Alex Stewart, but whether that will happen, I have no idea. We will definitely reinstate a chief selector, which I think is the right call. And I think the regular selection decisions or selection failures made by Silverwood and his inability to admit that, because we saw before the Melbourne test, when asked about his selection in Brisbane and Sydney, he said he thinks he made the right call both times. And I thought that showed a lack of foresight, a lack of real reflective thinking and a lack of ability to correct his errors. And of course, we've lost a lot of tests. He was quite successful up until the second test in Chennai in February of last year, because it is worth noting since the start of 2020, in games against sides that aren't Australia, New Zealand and India, we have won eight, drawn two and lost two, which is a very good record. But when you then get fixtures against those three top teams and you lose 3-1, 2-0, 2-1 and 4-0, you're not going to keep your job, particularly when it's the first series in a long time that we've not sorry, not the first series, the first summer in a long time that we've not won a test series. So I think he had to go. He was clearly, it was just too much for him. It was he was out of his depth, I think. Graham Thorpe just went down with the ship. There's not too much to say about that one. He was a less critical figure, but as a but as batting coach of a side that couldn't pass 300 in 10 innings of an Ashes series in Australia, where the tracks are supposedly better for batting, that would suggest he probably had to go. There were no surprises at all there. The replacements will be interesting, but I think the sackings will be expected. The big discussion was the squad announcement, which we'll come to in a moment. Mm. 
yeah, so we'll get on to that in a second. But is Justin Langer a, a shout um, for the coach? Yes and no. I think we wouldn't mind him getting a role. I think he'd consider it. I think, and of course, he is quite, he's very close friends with Andrew Strauss, who is the person hiring the next head coach. So I wouldn't completely rule it out. He'll definitely be on a short list of five or six names that we're looking at. But he's always been very big about he will not take a job if the coaching roles are split. And from what I can tell, we will almost certainly split the coaching roles and that will act against him wanting the job. There's also the point of he's one of the most patriotic Australians to have played cricket in, well, in pretty much Australian history. So the chance of him taking a job with the England side, despite maybe a bit of anger towards the Cricket Australia board, probably means he won't take the job. I honestly don't think I'd want him in the job anyway, but he'd, he'd be, it'd be a fascinating appointment if he did come in. But I'd love to see another Ashes series soon if he were there, but unfortunately we'd have to wait two and a half years before he could take on the old enemy or well, his new enemy. <laughs> the real old enemy. So uh, he won't, but it would be fun if he did. I don't know how it would work though, because his whole stick as Australian coach was, you know, being, you know, believing in the baggy green, having all these values. What does he yeah, just switch all, that across to the baggy blue or whatever? It is. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, he can he can impose elite mateship, but the issue you've got is like Australia had is he got sacked when he was winning because the players didn't like him. English players are hardly the most, they don't love criticism. They like it even less than the Australian yeah. camp does. It's an incredibly fragile camp. Because we got, we got to a select, to a situation in the Ashes where Ollie Pope was trying to fly his Surrey head coach over with his own money so he could get his confidence with the bat back. We had Ollie Robinson refusing to do tests because of fat shaming. We've had a bunch of other similar issues, which are all quite ridiculous, if you ask me. And I think that means it's probably not a culture that will come close to accepting Justin Langer. I'd like to see it. I think the culture shock would be fascinating, but I don't think it would work. I don't think they're compatible particularly. So Ethan, I don't think we'll see Your thoughts, Ethan? Yeah, I was just going to mention the, the Pope. Um, the Pope thing where he had to fly his coach over or he wanted to at least that was denied just shows that there are inadequacies um, I guess rifling through the England camp and that change was needed so I, I can understand um, all the decisions they've made and maybe we're going to look at a, a possible red ball overhaul starting with the coaches and now into the players as well mm. and just just finally on that um, will it be the selector I'm guessing won't just be the, the coach anymore, or are they going to stick with that? No, well, if, if you want an easy way of summarising the failures of the Ashley Giles regime, it's that Chris Silverwood's role, Chris Silverwood will be replaced by three different men. His job will be split into three people. His job will be split into a red ball coach, a white ball coach, and a chief selector. The fact that they've had to do that shows how terrible the previous management was and probably means that there will be a chief selector that comes back pretty much immediately who is separate from the coaching. We've already, of course, in selecting this squad for the West Indies, brought in a, well, de facto chief selector in, what's his name, in, oh, I should know this, the short fellow who used to bat for us but had to retire because of heart surgery, who's now named James, James Taylor? James Taylor, that's it. Yes, James Taylor. Thank you, Ethan. Yeah, he's sort of de facto chief selector as head scout for the ECB and was one of three, three people in a voting capacity that discussed this team along with Collingwood and Strauss, which indicates we definitely will have a chief selector back. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think that will be a particularly contentious decision. Well, some may think that they might have to get rid of James Taylor and those selectors also after the, the team they selected. Here was your, your first test series after the Ashes. You come in and no Anderson or Broad or Milan. What, what's the thinking there? I, I know Ted is a massive fan of Dawid Milan, hence the fact that he's put Dawid Milan in the same category. <laughs> Anderson and Broad is contentious drop. But I do agree, probably all three of them should have at least get their spot in the squad, if not the side. 
I think we didn't, I mean, we didn't bowl brilliantly in Australia by any means, but bowling certainly wasn't the weakness. The reason we lost 4-0 was our batsmen couldn't pass 300. And I'm not sure the appropriate response to that is sacking your two best bowlers that have taken a combined 1,100 plus wickets. I think I'm okay. Well, I'm fine with flooding in new players. I think at some point that had to be done. I think part of it is just for whoever the new head coach is to see how these new players are. But I think there are issues there. And I think if you're a new player like Matt Fisher, who's been brought in for his maiden tour, if there's anyone in test cricket you want to learn off, it's Anderson and it's Broad. So I, th- I disagree with that selection decision. I could have understood resting one as a fitness thing to keep them in line for the summer and keep them fit. But we saw rest and rotation failed last year. So I, I'd have picked them. I think it feels like we're picking a squad just essentially to trial out new names. I think if England to improve as a side, we need to stop thinking so long term. Angus Fraser came out in defense of the droppings of Anderson and Broad and said, this is good because it shows we're thinking about the ashes in Australia in 25, 26. That's not the right way to approach test cricket. The way to approach tests is to say, we're going to win the test and the series in front of us. And I don't feel we've done that in this series by dropping quite a few players who probably deserve to stay in the side. Anderson and Broad being the, main two the others i can understand those two not so much is, is there anything in the the thinking that you know one of the other takeaways from the ashes is that you do need more express pace bowlers and that potentially you know bringing in mahmoud um and these sorts of, of players that's the, the future and you need to move on for edison and Brody. i mean y- yes but if that was the plan then you'd wait for your other two very good express pace bowlers and Jofra Archer and Ollie Stone to be fit. And then you could have those two, Wood and Mahmoud, as bowlers that can all bowl 140 plus in the same squad. But we don't have that. We have, well, Mahmoud, although everyone claims him to be a very quick bowler, still isn't particularly rapid. He is, he's quicker than anyone else in the England side, but he's not close to Mark Wood by any means. He'd be more similar to, I don't know, maybe a, high 130s bowler than he would be a almost I'd say Josh Hazelwood pace rather than a Mitchell Stark style bowler so I, d- I don't think we really needed to do that I think yes we need express pace bowlers and I'd like to see Mahmoud blooded into the side but I think you can do that while still having your best bowlers in the squad I think Mahmoud is probably with the injuries to Archer Stone probably Sam Curran, although I think he's above him in the pecking order. Mahmoud probably makes it in on merit, even with Broad and Anderson there. So I, I think it's a needless decision. And yes, they'll go on. Andrew Strauss has claimed that it's to give other bowlers responsibility. If you really wanted to set an example and give responsibility, you'd have dropped a player like Ollie Robinson and said, we won't pick you again till you pass strict fitness benchmarks. We saw first test of the Ashes at the Gabba we opened with Wokes and we opened with Robinson and it didn't work. Yes, we need to develop leaders in the side, but we also need to win test matches and we won't become a great test side by getting whitewashed in the West Indies but in the name of blooding youth players. New Zealand selection policy has been so effective in the last few years because they only pick established domestic players who had a sustained run of form. They brought in two debut players into the squad for the South Africa series, both of whom are 30 years or older. In the last year, Rachin Ravindra is the only player I can name that debuted under the age of 25. So possibly we need to start doing that. And this constant blooding in youth and picking a weaker squad to do so, I don't think is the best way forward for English cricket. Mm. Do you agree on that, Nathan? Yeah, I think my take on this is if you have a fully fit squad, then I can understand not picking Broder Anderson. If you've got the likes of Stone, Archer, Mahmood, Wood, Robinson, that's enough bowlers to give yourself a quality attack that will set you up for a while. Um, but they don't have that. You know, Stone and Archer aren't there. And so you're looking at, you know, if, if Wokes is seven from your three quicks that you're going to pick, you've got Robinson, Wood, um, and you've got Mahmoud and Fisher. 
I don't know if Robinson can play all three tests. He's got fitness issues, as we've seen. The same goes for Wood. Even though he did play three tests in a row, I'm not sure they'll back him um, again for three tests in a row. And then you've got someone like Fisher, who, in my opinion, isn't international level yet. Um, he you know, might play one or two tests. And I, I don't think it's, it's worthwhile breeding in someone into the international level who just won't play again for a very long time when you're back to full strength. I can understand it with, you know, putting players from your full strength squad who will actually get games, but um, I, I would certainly have definitely at least one events and on broad in the squad, if not both. I also feel a bit sorry for broad. He always sort of gets grouped in with uh, Anderson, despite being a couple of years younger. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think I saw this, uh, this um, stat that said like, from when Anderson was broad's age to now, he's taken like 117 wickets at 22. So if you just say a oh, broad to Anderson's 39, which I can understand, but broad's not not, not that not that old. You're missing out on another you know, 100 odd wickets. He could play for another two years, no worries. Um, so I, I do think it's, it's a bit harsh to always just group broad and Anderson together when broad is you know a couple of years younger. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. It would definitely be. Interesting series to watch. Is it on Kale? I, I don't know. Is it? Yeah, it should be. I'd be very annoyed if it I think it will be. But right. we'll find out. Okay. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast for this week. Uh, we'll be back next week with much more. Um, thank you guys for coming on. Thanks for having me. Right. And thank you all for listening. Goodbye.